The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. So, Maureen, like a lot of people have had a lot of jobs, but you and I, a few jobs... We have been traffic reporters at the same place, but not at the same time. And you've you've been a journalist. You still are a journalist. You've done comedy. You're still kind of funny. Still kind of funny. I still feel kind of funny. Yeah, I do comedy mostly for myself. We've also been cowgirls. Yeah, but I think we just kind of say that we're not really. Honest to God, I think if we tried, we could round up cattle if we had to. An interesting thing, we're about to talk to somebody in the restaurant business. We both worked in restaurants. Like they were kind of a big deal for us in when we were kids. Yeah, well, you you didn't just work in a restaurant. You were like, I don't know, like a backroom girl or I don't even know what that means. But you you were right in there. Yeah, well, it was when I, I moved to Montreal because I, you know, I thought it would be like covering a foreign country. Uh, it was back in 1979. I worked at CFCF, Canada's first and Canada's finest, CTV Montreal. And I fell madly in love with this guy who was in the restaurant business who was a general manager of a big going concern there. And then he went and opened up his own restaurant. He was 20. I was 21. He was 23. So young. We lost like tens of thousands of dollars, which it took me about a decade to pay off. The marriage never happened. (laughs) It was a good thing. We never got married. But yeah, I was a waitress. I was a host. I was a bartender, a loan provider, sort of a mob whisperer. Maybe we can go into that a little later. But it, it it was nuts. It was in a good way, mostly. But it's exciting. It's okay. So my experience wasn't quite as well-rounded as yours, but I worked at the Keg Mansion back in the day when it was a super popular destination. And I waitressed and I attended bar and I made a lot of money, but I had a bar manager who told me that I didn't really have what it takes to be a good server. So what, what is the way you got your garnishes wrong? No, I had the garnishes were fine. My, my, the technical side, I was good, but I was told, and I have never forgotten this, that I'm not deferential enough to, you know, asshole customers. And it was basically the customers always right. Well, we're actually about to talk to somebody who's in the restaurant business now and who argues that maybe the customer is not always right. But yeah, it is a challenging business, that's for sure. It's the toughest. It is the toughest, especially if you are a woman. And Jen Ag is a woman. Yes. So Jen Ag, she's going to join us in just a sec. She's a, we'll give you a bit of background on her. She's, she's a legend in the Toronto restaurant scene. She owns some of the hottest places. I think you've actually, you've been doing research, Maureen. I was, this was, this was a good research that I had to do. I went to Grey Gardens last week, which was beautiful and delicious. And I was at her newest place, Bar Vendetta. I went there the week before and that used to be the Black Hoof. And she also owns Le Swan, which is like a French diner, and Rum Corner, which is named for her husband, Roland, who's from Haiti. And I think that's it at the moment. Well, and we can't forget Bar Agricole, which was like one of the coolest places in Montreal. My daughter took me to Rum Corner, and we were supposed to get a little bamboozled. And I, I don't like rum, but I didn't confess until halfway through. But I love the, I love the restaurant, though. Well, you know, maybe not go to Rum Corner if you don't like rum. So we're going to talk to Jen Ag. She's written a book, don't forget. Yeah, not just her restaurants, but the memoir. So she wrote this memoir, which is, what's it called? It's called, I Hear She's a Real Bitch. So I Hear She's a Real Bitch. It's so good. I think she could be a writer if if she did nothing else. She's an excellent writer. We have so much to talk about. Shall we bring her on? Do you think she might be a real bitch? Uh, well, let's find out. Jen, we can talk about whether you're a bitch in a sec, but how are you? Where are you? You've been traveling. Well, I've just been sitting here listening to you guys introduce me, and which is incredibly awkward, by the way. And I have a couple follow-up questions, so we'll get we'll get to the travels. 
Okay, my follow-up questions are, who is the Montreal guy? The Keg Mansion still is a destination, in my opinion. (laughs) And there was one more, and it'll come to me. Can you spill, Wendy? So the Montreal guy, actually, I just found out that he died at 62, which is a little weird. So he was the general manager of the old spaghetti factory in old Montreal. And then he started his own place called Nifties, which was his nickname from because he was a basketball star. And so he kind of grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. His dad was, you know, a convicted bookmaker and his mother was proper. And we went, we basically would make 200 bucks and we'd take that out of the till and go to bet them on the horses because that was all crooked. <laughs> and then we, one day the air conditioning didn't work because he bought like an old building on the strip in uh, the top of the Dakari Strip which meant a lot to him growing up in sort of Jewish Montreal and uh, meant a lot. But it was there was a reason it was for lease and empty for 20 years. The air conditioning didn't work and everybody ran. Like one day it was packed and the next day we got out, oh, the air conditioning doesn't work. Let's go somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, we lost we lost a lot of money. But you know all about that. <laughs> Making money. Well, I try not to lose money in the restaurant business because it's all my money. So I try to hold on to it. Yeah, well, you've been pretty successful. I think you just, the the first experience or cobalt or whatever was a bit of a money losing thing, but. Not really. I mean, it's like, (laughs) I wouldn't say you should do this, but I didn't lose money, my money. I didn't have anything to lose. So I, I had no choice but to declare bankruptcy. So I didn't actually, it was not an amazing thing to go through. And it caused a lot of issues as I grew older and was trying to, you know, establish credit or buy things. I think our first car, we had to buy it in both my husband and my name because of that. But eventually it got better. And I didn't technically lose the money. Actually, no, I lived on that place for eight years. Did you ever, like, you have so many too. So do you open a restaurant and then, and it's a success, and then you want to open another one? So a lot of people just say, okay, I'm going to rest on my laurels here. Well, I don't think that the success part is what I'm chasing. Like, I like building things. And that's the what's the most fun of the process for me is is the build. Like I love going to the door store or Addison's, which is no longer around, sadly, and picking through garbage on the streets. Like I there are mirrors hanging in my restaurants that I've picked up literally on the curb. And I compile these things. Like currently I'm compiling things now for a space. And I just sort of have them and it grows and grows and grows. And then when I find the right location, I let the space, sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I let the space tell me what it is, even though I know that I'm going to impose my own vision on it. I also allow it to kind of be itself. So if it has like a beautiful concrete floor, that's just like buried under shitty tile and needs to be exposed. Like I I definitely want to try and find the history in the building. And other times, you know, it's, you have to bury the history of the building. So it's, I, I really do try to kind of work with the space, but kind of, you know, with my ideas in there. So we can get into, because I'm really interested in whether you're a bitch or not. Well, do, I mean, do I seem like a bitch? No, not not yet. The point of the title of the book is that twist, not a bitch. It's early days, though. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to get into that, but I just, I don't want to lose, because to me, I know that Anthony Bourdain was like, he blurbed on the title of, on the cover page of your book and he's kind of a big deal. And then he died and he was like a cool guy and you have mixed feelings about him, but. Why do I have mixed feelings about him? What are my mixed feelings about him? Well, you, I think you said that his book sort of enabled chefs to go on and with this idea that restaurants are just a place to get drunk and have sex in the back, which is not necessarily a bad thing. 
Well, I mean, I did have those feelings, but I also discussed them with him. And like, it doesn't, I don't have mixed feelings about him. I have mixed feelings about maybe some of the ideas that were in fashion at the time when he grabbed onto that lightning bolt. Yeah, well, he kind of exposed, I guess, what was happening in restaurants. And then, because I wanted to ask you for your Anthony Bourdain, like, don't eat fish on Mondays thing, but we can do that later because that's not the most important thing. It's not a thing anymore. Oh, it's not a thing? So you can eat like fish any night of the week? Yeah, it's about your purveyors and your relationship. Like that might have been a thing like 25 years ago when fish was less commonly eaten than it is now. But no, it's definitely not a thing anymore. So until I read your book, I mean, I'd, I'd known about the restaurants, but not being in the business myself, I didn't realize that you were the owner. I actually thought you were the chef, but of course, and there are chef owners, but the two are mutually exclusive, I would think, especially after having read your book. I don't know how anybody can do those two jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a common misconception, misperception, misperception that I, I get called Chef Genag all the time, much to my actual chef business partner's amusement. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that chefs should be running the front of the house. Like, I, I don't I don't think they're equipped to do all of that. Like running a kitchen well is its own huge job. It requires a lot of time, a lot of stamina, a lot of creativity and a lot of organization and a lot of qualities that like most people who are chefs don't even have. So it's the very rare chef that actually is a good leader and is incredibly good at cooking food and coming up with ideas that are maybe a little bit outside the box, but still within the box enough to like grab people's attention. All of that stuff. I mean, it's a super difficult job. But also, if you're really, really talented at cooking, the cooking part is not really the challenge. It's the it's the managing people and keeping your food costs down and all of the kind of business things that come with that. So if you're doing that, and then you're also trying to like figure out how to run a team of maybe 12 to 25 or more people to make sure that your wine list is also cutting edge to make sure that the lighting is right and the music is right. I, don't, I just don't think that it's possible for chefs to do that well. It's interesting because we both picked up on how you spent four chapters talking about the guy who was the chef in the Black Hoof, which was such an amazing, like it kind of spread the whole idea of nose to tail eating. And it's really taken off since then. But Grant Van Gameren and you, like you are two of the biggest restaurant owners. And yet it sounds like there was a bit of tension there. And I don't think it was four chapters. I think it was two chapters at the most, but okay. Yeah. But then you wrote about Chris Nuttall Smith and I thought, you know, there she's acknowledging, yeah, maybe the guy's got, maybe he has a point. Like you were very fair with him, but. Wait, I don't think he has any points. Where did I say he has a point? Oh, you said, well, maybe he, there was too much salt on his food or something. Oh, about customers. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I lost the thread there. Yeah. Anyway, all to say that the only person who seemed to really get under your skin was this Grant Van Gameren person. And I'm just wondering, I don't know, I think it takes, doesn't it take something to be, to like run a restaurant, to be successful? Like you kind of, you're both a, a thing. I'm not saying that, that you're wrong and that he wasn't an asshole and that women like you aren't allowed to have strong opinions and to try and enforce them and to try and do things. Like, I agree with you. I just, I guess I'm curious about that relationship and why he got so under your skin and whether it's just something that happens in the restaurant business, aside from the woman and being a bitch thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a lot of layers to that question. And I don't think he's the only person who's ever gotten under my skin. But I think it was a relationship that was worth exploring for 
specifically for Toronto readers of the book. I mean, I think to not acknowledge it and to not acknowledge what happened would have done a disservice to the book and to you know local readers of it, which is a way of saying a thing I just said a different, better way. And I hope that I made clear that a lot of the issues were because misogyny, not because I'm sensitive or someone got under my skin. It was an impossible relationship and one that I certainly tried very hard to make work for a very long time. And eventually I gave up. And I mean, it's, you know, you could certainly chalk it up if you were a diplomat to, hey, two people just didn't get along, but I'm not a diplomat. And there was like things that were at fault. I'm sure he has a very different perspective. I don't care what it is. I haven't thought about him in a very long time. It's been like 10 years, I think. So, I mean, I wrote, I wrote the book as some catharsis for some things, and it certainly was that. I had not spoken publicly about what happened in our sort of breakup. I mean, we weren't a couple, but we had a business breakup. And I had not said anything about it publicly. And he'd said a lot of stuff about it publicly, and it wasn't true. And that was, you know, hard to take. But I also think when you're a woman like me, not just a woman, but when you're a woman like me who will say what I think and has an opinion about everything... It's just really easy to demonize me in that relationship. And that's really what happened. Like I just I put up this tweet on Instagram a little while ago about, I can't remember what the publication was, but I was going through old phone albums and there was this little blurb in some publication and it was talking about how excited they were for El Rey, Grant Van Gameren, like superstar, rock star chef, El Rey to come to Kensington Market. And I'll, if, I'll find you the, the picture of it if I can, because I just posted about it a couple of weeks ago. And then the way that they talk about Grey Gardens is just like, and I hope it lives up to the hype. Like, it's just a very, very obvious moment. And that stuff was happening all the time back then. Like, the city could not get off his dick, and they could not stop beating me up in my vagina. And I, I understood it because I, you know, again, I know who I am, but I also know who he is. And I mean, the forward-facing messaging that was happening was not accurate. And I mean, since since then, a lot of that stuff's come out on Instagram. I mean, there's a reason he deleted all his accounts. I mean, I don't know. I don't have much to say about what he's like as a boss or a leader now. I was just going to say, you know, from listening to this and reading about opening all these these places, these bars and restaurants, to me, if it's like anything, it's almost like putting on a like a Broadway production because you've got you've got design and you've got sets and you've got the the writers and, you know, in this case, the chef and the owner. And, and it's a business and there are investors involved and there's an opening night and the whole thing just seems very performative. And of course, the personalities that it attracts are probably very similar to stage managers and actors and, and so on. And of course, people are going to hurt each other's feelings or misunderstand each other. It's an enormous amount of pressure. And, you know, you've been enormously successful. I agree that it's very performative in lots of ways. I mean, I, I don't have investors. I just want to really underscore that because it is very unusual in this industry to not have investors. And after doing this so well for so long, I have never, ever been offered money by any person or company. And that is unheard of. Like up and coming young chefs or, you know, superstar sommeliers or front of house people who are different kind of people, maybe more like male type people get offered money all the time, like at two, three years of their success. So it's not changing because, you know, you, you wrote this stuff. You think it's changing in your world? No, I don't. But I mean, your world wasn't exposed to Anthony Bourdain said all this shit is happening. There was a thing with the kitchen bitches or whatever, where somebody came forward and said, you know, I'll get my bra. I get like humped in the restaurant. It's like so ridiculous. The industry is so rife with misogyny and you've had this fight. But now you're saying like, even after all the success, 
people still aren't giving you a break? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated when you're inside it the way I'm inside it. Like, it's really easy for me to, like, I understand what I've built. And I have a wonderful, large, loyal staff. And I have made amazing partnerships with people. And I have a very good management team. And I know that the city at large likes the restaurants because they're busy all the time. And I know that, you know, even the restaurant industry likes the restaurants, even if they kind of don't want to admit or they're begrudgingly admitting that, yes, okay, I guess she's all right at this. Because for the longest time, it sort of felt to me like, and this could be a painting with too broad a brush as I want to do, but it felt to me like I was fighting sort of these ugly rumors that were being started by men about my personality, which was just me being a leader, me being a boss, not me being abusive. And it's often conflated when you're a woman. And a lot of women in the industry would carry carry water for those rumors. And I mean, I think the internalized misogyny is just as problematic. And that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it's complicated. I don't think it's changing that much. I think that even with everything that happened after George Floyd's murder with an uprising, I just, I don't see, I, I don't see it. I think that companies are embarrassed. I mean, you know, it's a motivating thing to not want to be caught with your pants down, so to speak. So like, I think there is that aspect that, you know, they, they don't want to be called out as assholes, so they will do their very best to hide it. And I guess that's something, maybe that is a first step forward is that people are actually embarrassed so interesting. I remember, I don't know whether like this was a big deal for journalists, maybe not for the rest of the world, but at some point, a couple of years, three or four years ago, a bunch of women reporters were down at the Raptors or whatever, and people would come up and they'd like, oh, fuck, we're in that pussy. And there was this huge thing. And it was just, it was so appalling. And a producer came to me and said, oh, Wendy, you know, you were a female trailblazer, blah, 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 on the hill and whatever. So how bad is it? How bad is the misogyny? And I was like, when I was starting out, there were no women covering anything. So we've come a long way. And it was not the answer that she was looking for. She was like, why can't things be better? Which is what I think you're arguing that just because shit happened to you, you know, when you were 20, 30, 40 years later, doesn't mean it needs to still happen. But I think that's what happens in, I don't know, third wave feminism. I don't know what wave we're in, but like, I think with older women, particularly who have had to, or older people in general, who've had to go through shit. I do think that there's this tendency to be like, well, that's just what it's like, or it's so much better now, and to have kind of blinders on about how bad it actually is because you had it so much worse, one had it so much worse. And I do understand why young people find that answer off-putting, to be honest. No, I, I do too. I was like, yeah, you're right. Just because it's better doesn't mean it can't be less shitty. You get Stockholm syndrome about it, and you also get like, I'm on the mountain syndrome about it. And like, when you have planted your flag somewhere close to the top, they never let you right at the top, but somewhere close to the top of the mountain, then there is this sort of sense that like, oh, well, I actually need to hold on to this. And I'm not saying that's you, but I'm saying that is a very common thing. Well, me and Mo are just marching up the mountain. <laughs> we're with our crampons for light days. The Women of Ill Repute. Jan, I want to actually, it's funny, switching gears a little bit, because I want to ask you about your husband. So from straight from feminism too. you love your husband so much. I mean, we love our husbands, too. But it's a really lovely thread through your book is how much he has meant to you. And as you say, you couldn't do this without him. And I think you mean that in the purest sense of the word. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's anti-feminist to love your husband, <laughs> but I do love him a lot. And uh, we just did this kind of massive trip together, and it was a little bit insane. I don't know what kind of asshole drags their strokey husband around North America on a car trip, but it's it's me. That's the kind of asshole that does that. We also did spend three months in LA in between the driving part, so that was very nice. But yeah, it was a little bit crazy, and he's not somebody I would say is like a natural trooper. But he really, for the most part, was pretty much a trooper, except I've told this story so many times now, so forgive me if it sounds a little bit too polished. But um, we ended up on Google Maps, took us through the Alberta Badlands because it was kind of the most direct route. So it was all of these side roads, which was amazing because I could just like whip along them. There was no other drivers. There was nobody anywhere. So you could really go very fast with no worry that there would be any problem with that. It's just flat and straight. And then eventually uh, we take a turn and it's like onto a dirt road. And my husband is not super like keen on this in any way. Like right from the beginning, I see that he's not loving this. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. Like it's no big deal. As soon as we make the next turn, I'm, I'm certain that that will be onto pavement. And that was not what happened. So we, we turned on, it was still a dirt road. And it was like 22 kilometers on this dirt road. And then it starts like the landscape starts changing and the topography is sort of fascinating. It's this beautiful, I've never seen anything like it in Canada. It's very like Badlandsy. I learned later that it's called Drumheller. I kept calling it Humbledork, but it's actually called Drumheller. I don't know how I mixed those words up in my head. And we're driving through and I'm just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm just kind of like, if you would just turn to your right, sir, and look out the window, you'll see some extreme beauty. No, I'm good. And he's like, the whole time, he's just like, why did you do this? Like, why did you? And I was like, well, I didn't do it. It's Google Maps that did it. And this is just like, we just kind of have to stick to the program. Like we're on the road now. We'll get to Saskatoon eventually. Like, and then he'd sort of accept that. And like two minutes would go by and he's just like, why did you do this? And I was like, and so we had that conversation many times. And then we get to the kind of the most beautiful part of these like rocky, badlandsy vibes. And we're going down this very twisty, turny, weird, like it does feel a little bit murdery as well, which I think was his concern. Cause also his argument was like, you're white. Of course you're fine with this. And I'm like, okay, I got to pull the car over and take a picture. And literally he was like, you keep driving. Like he just was like, absolutely not. I had to like take a picture. And I said, you know, we're going to be laughing about this like at dinner, which is absolutely no, I am not laughing now. (laughs) That is like a respectful version of how he speaks. So I don't know. That was like probably the least troopery part of the drive. But for the most part, he was quite a trooper. We did like long hauls a lot. It was kind of crazy. You call him strokey, which (laughs) he can only laugh. Well, I can do that. I wouldn't recommend you doing that. Unless your husband or partner has had a stroke, and then you can say that, and it's fine. You can. Well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> How's he doing? He's, you know, I wouldn't recommend having a stroke. It's tough. I mean, it's been two years, and he walks, you know, but not the same walk. And you can tell that, some, like, if you saw him walking, you'd be like, oh, that guy probably had a stroke. And it's hard with energy. Like, he just doesn't have the same energy. The clarity, the thing he complains most about is just the lack of clarity in his mind. And I, and he, he's a chess player, so he plays a lot of chess and, and he can sort of gauge how he's feeling by how, it's, how he's playing chess. But overall, he's actually playing chess better, like based on chess scores, which is kind of interesting. To me, the personality is really the same. Like there's nothing there that is lost, which is really important. I think I would find it very difficult to all of a sudden be in a, in a life with somebody I didn't quite recognize. I think that would be, I'm sure that's happened to lots of people. And my, I, that sounds very hard. I lost my dad to Alzheimer's. So I kind of know a little bit about what that's like. And um, yeah, I mean, we just kind of soldier on like every once in a while he'll joke, you know, oh, you know, you're going to leave me or just like sort of not joking, but joking. 
And my response is always the same. It's like, you know, the public perception of me is such that I am a cunt. So if I leave you, that will only prove them right. So unfortunately, I'm locked in here. (laughs) (laughs) That's very, very romantic. (laughs) It's definitely a joke. I don't really get, of course, I'm talking to you in an interview situation and I've just read your book, so I feel like I know you. That's a weird thing when people have read your book and they, you know. Yeah, I know. It must be. And you're you're very open in every way in your book, but I just don't get it. I don't get why people, I mean, are you different in business? I think I've tried to explain it as well as I possibly can. I think a lot of it is misogyny. So like I'm a direct person and I'm I'm sure there's things that I've said in this conversation that you both found ever so slightly off-putting because I'm really good at reading people's faces. No, it was just the C-U-N-T word, which someday I'll be able to say. You can say cunt. It's fine. I'm sure that there's things like, I think there's things about, especially in this culture, we're not great at, um, we're really passive aggressive. Like we'll knife each other in the back while we're smiling, which I find deeply offensive as a way to be. So I am not like that. And I think that people find that difficult from men, but intolerable from women. So I do think a lot of it is that like I will have past employees who have like a bone to pick with me. And it's just like when when we really get down to like what it is about, it's really about they don't like taking orders from a woman like that's they might not understand that that's what what it's about. And I'm trying to be objective, you know, as as much as I can be about my leadership. And I, I will say that I've gotten much better as a leader over the years. But I was never abusive with people ever. And I will like beat that dead horse. Like I was just a boss. I wanted things done a certain way. I would tell people I would correct during service. Nobody likes that. Like people don't like their bosses, but for some reason they will just, they will take it from a dude in a way that they absolutely won't from women and women included in that. It's not men exclusively. So, I mean, I think it comes down to choosing people really well and having staff that don't kind of, that aren't saddled with that kind of thinking. That's really where a lot of it comes from. And I mean, I I say what I think, and you're really not supposed to do that. Well, especially as as a woman, I remember my first serious boyfriend's brother who, you know, was like super handsome saying, but she's so ambitious, like all men and all women are. I just want to go back to the the husband thing. You said that one of the things that really appealed in your in the early days was the value of truth, which is so complicated because. Like my mom believes so much in truth and she, you know, she told a very good friend of hers that she'd married a twat, you know, like, why are you married to him? So that's not helpful. I mean, I did that once and I lost the friendship and I was like, okay, right. I get it. Yeah. So there's truth and there's truth, but then there's also, and I have this debate with friends all the time is like, if you go to, and maybe it's because of my mother, maybe it's because I spent time in Montreal. I don't know. But if you go to a restaurant and someone serves you something and it's like the scallops are overcooked, are you supposed to say? I had a lovely meal and you're lovely and whatever, but the scallops are a little bit overcooked. Like, well, when they ask you. Well, I can't. I mean, I would love to. I would love that kind of relationship. I can't say I never, I never do anymore. It's just not worth it for me. As a known restaurant person, I can't say anything. I just take it. But as a customer, like, I don't know. I think it's a good thing for an owner to hear. I think the scallops are a little overcooked. I'm going to come back, but I'm not going to order the scallops. It's much better when people give us a chance to fix something than when they just smile like a Canadian and say everything was great and then go online and trash the restaurant. I would really relish the chance to make your experience better. We don't want you to have a bad time. No, of course not. And I think the bar has been raised simply because everybody's a critic now. You know, you can go anywhere and post a review of any place and vent that way. So I, everyone's got to be on their best game, whatever that might be. Are you a good customer? 
a good patron? I, I think so. I think I'm extremely, extremely like over the top charming to servers. I mean, I, I get really irritated by bad service, but I try to hide it as best I can. I'm not sure that I am always fully successful in that, but no, I'm, I'm like, I'm respectful and I, I like to have a nice repartee with whoever is serving the table. That's, you know, my dream is that somebody will like be interested in, in telling me what they like best or telling me the truth and being like, actually stay away from that. You know, like that's the server I love the most is the one who'll just be like, no, it's no good. Don't order that. And I tip really, really well. And, you know, I'm in and out in less than two hours. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess that's one of my pet peeves is I thank goodness you don't have a lot of uh, white linen uh, restaurants because whatever, I don't have anything against white linen. But the whole idea that it's about food, that it's about service. And uh, I guess in Toronto and in a number of big cities now, they have this two service thing. So it's like, let's get them through as quickly as possible. And the last time I went to a fancy restaurant in Toronto, they actually we took like maybe 12 minutes before we wanted to focus on the menu. And that was not acceptable. And they kept saying things like, well, the most popular items on the menu are, why don't you just, and I was like, no, it's just horrible. But you teach your people, you're very explicit with your staff, but you also teach them important things like don't grab the plate when someone's got a fork in their hand. This is a really interesting, I and mean, I'm going to just, I'm going to not answer the question you asked me and answer the question I feel like answering. But I, I think what's interesting about trying to do two or three turns, and I, I assume your listeners know what a turn is. A turn is like on the table, we're, we're trying to get, say, a seating in at 5.30, from 5.30 to 7.30, another seating in at 7.30, from 7.30 to 9.30, and then maybe one before 10, sneak one more in there. And the reason that we have to do that is because it's a business. And like restaurants are notoriously unprofitable and they don't make tons and tons of money. Like even though you see that I seem successful, it's like it's I have enough restaurants now that I can make an okay living off it. But like it's it's a really difficult business to do well at. I mean, if you own a restaurant, you might have a manager that's making more money than you. And that is 100 percent true. But the, the art of it. So that's the commerce of it. The art of it is not letting them see behind the curtain. So if you're really good at running a restaurant, when somebody comes in, they don't feel rushed. They're just being properly paced. And they're not, you know, we, we might tell them about the table times because, you know, after COVID, we really, you kind of have to, you have to say, listen, like, we're in a situation here. We've been closed for two years. And we'd really appreciate it if you dined in this amount of time and showed up on time for your reservation and understood when it's time to go. And, you know, you only have to say that for 5% of the people, maybe 10% of the people, like most people get it. So we try to pace you properly. And that's why if somebody hasn't ordered after 12 minutes, it's kind of like, you were on a clock here, but you shouldn't feel that. And they shouldn't be saying things like the most popular thing is this. They should be saying things like, what do you feel like drinking tonight? Let me see if I can guide you in the right direction. Like that's how I would do something like that and engage with people. And the minute that you can engage with them and they trust you because you already made a good decision about which Pinot Noir to drink or whatever, they'll be on your side. It's like, it's really about a dance. And I think the best servers are real kind of control freaks that are very good at, at reading what a table needs and responding to that. And like, it's all psychology. It's all, and it can be really fun, you know, to have that control, but it really, the, when service is going well, it's because the server is in control and the diner doesn't realize that they're being, you know, controlled. No, I feel like I could have been a better server. <laughs> That's my takeaway. I think it's a, it's, it is, it's a connection, right? Well, and you're a bit of a performer too. I, I think it makes sense for you. I mean, that's the high tech explanation. Like, I don't think most people see it that way. I don't think most restaurateurs see it that way, but I think that really is what's happening. You're going to write another book? You're writing another book? Yeah, my agent thinks I should. <laughs> Do you think you should? 
Yeah, no, I'm kidding. No, I am. I'm excited about it. I was in LA writing. That's why I was, that's why I was there because I find it a lot easier to turn my brain off in certain capacities and turn it on in other capacities when I am away from my life. And it was really a beautiful life. I mean, I just had, I felt no pressure. We were staying with a friend and she has a back house and she travels a lot. So we kind of like migrate between the houses and beautiful backyard space. And I would just sit outside and write and get coffee and make breakfast and cook and grill. And it was really, really nice. I don't know exactly how it's going to come together. I kind of know what I'm trying. I sort of feel like I'm not writing toward a goal right now, but I'm writing chapters and then we will weave them together. And that's how I wrote the first book. It was a lot easier to write the first book though, because I just knew like I was telling sort of a life story and a work life story. And this is a little more abstract than that. I look forward to it. You're very good. You're a good writer. I mean, almost everyone that we are talking to on this show has written a book of some kind, though they're not necessarily writers professionally. I think if you've written a book, you're a writer. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> like I, I, I caught that you identified me as, I think you said not a writer, but wrote a book or something to that effect. I've written a lot. I've written for a lot of outlets. And I mean, it's going to sound a little egoist, but I mean, I, I started doing that as a fun thing and as a hobby, but I've had a lot of success at it, partly because I think of my notoriety in the restaurant business, but also partly because I'm good. Like the New Yorker is not printing garbage writers, except the humor. But anyway, so I mean, I think, I think like, I think it's okay and fair to identify me as a writer. But I also love the fact that I don't have to hustle and write because that would really take the, the love out of it for me. A lot of my friends are writers and I know they have to hustle and I know it's hard. And I'm really, really glad that I have an income from something else. So I don't know whether I feel like I have to justify this. I probably don't with you because you're pretty open about things that you're open about. But Maureen and I both had breast cancer. So we've kind of got a boob thing going on. And <laughs> you write in your book that you were born with one boob. Like we're now like I got one and a half and I just have one. Did you have reconstructive surgery? I did, but they're so different. They don't even speak to each other. <laughs> one's going this way. Yeah. One, one's living its best life and the other one is proud and artificial. So yeah, but that's tough enough when it happens to you as an adult. But I imagine that that was quite a challenge for you growing up. Well, at least I wasn't attached to two, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, it sucked. It's not fun. I wouldn't recommend it. Have you found like your book again, there are drawings you put in a very beautiful and some would say explicit sketch without any explanation, which is fine. I like it. It's just there. And you say that you feel a little uncomfortable sometimes talking to people knowing that they've read your book and by reading your book, kind of explored every aspect that you wanted to put in there and know way more about you than you do about them. And I wonder how it's like to live like that. I'm not, I don't find it uncomfortable. I mean, I don't find a lot uncomfortable. I find it just strange, which I think is slightly different. Sorry, I'm a little bit of a pedant about things like that sometimes. It's precision in language and precision in language, especially about how I feel. But it's strange to be known in any way. And it's not something I ever explicitly wanted. Like I never, I wouldn't say that I'm like a wallflower or that I shy away from it. And I've always been good at public speaking and expressing myself. But I never wanted to have any kind of Fame, even the tiny little bit of, you know, Toronto, Canada fame that I do have, and especially in the restaurant world, it is, it's just strange. It's strange to have people have a preconceived idea about you before having ever spoken to you. It's strange to go into a restaurant and feel the temperature change and know that you're the reason. Like it's, it's odd. And it's strange to have, you know, people come and talk to you and 
you know, I, I don't mind, like, I never mind if somebody wants to come up and tell me that they love my book, like who doesn't want to hear that? Like, of, of course, it's wonderful. But I also see that I feel the switch flipping, which is probably not something I should say publicly. But like, of course, you know, you go into a mode about it. Like I have to protect myself. I have to protect something and keep something for myself. I put my vagina in my book. So like I have a very, very strong interior life that people don't know about because I hold on to it in small ways. And I know that doesn't maybe seem like it makes a lot of sense, but I think I did find a way to be open, but still create privacy. And that, especially when people are talking to me in front of the restaurant or something or on the street or whatever, I will just kind of go into like, oh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like, lovely to hear that. I am charming and I am appreciative of that. And it's not a hard conversation to have, but it also does feel like work sometimes or like, you know, like I'm just trying to like have a nice walk by myself or with my husband and it can, it can feel invasive, even though I know that's not the intention and I never really mind it, but it, it's just, it's a strange thing to navigate. And I, I don't know why anyone would ever want to be famous in any way. It's like so unappealing. Yeah. My daughter would always give me shit because sometimes you'd just be like really involved in something emotional with your daughter or your husband or with whatever. And someone would come along and go, It'll be fine if they'd want to talk to you about an issue that you'd raised or, you know, an experience that they really had with you or with me. But instead, it's like, you're famous. Can we just like, no, 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 or, or you're this or you're that. And then the onus is on you. Hey, famous person, do something. And you have to be nice. I mean, if I, you know, especially me, like if I, if I don't handle it graciously and with patience and kindness, then I mean, and again, why wouldn't I? But like then people are going to be not super happy about that. Well, at least you have, there's a reason. You have a bunch of successful restaurants. So you can be, you can be proud of those. And you've launched a whole bunch of trends. So before we let you go, what's the next trend? I know that's not what your book is about, but I just, I, I'm not even saying I desperately need to know. What do you like? Well, I mean, I don't know if you saw my Instagram post. I noticed you followed me on Instagram. Let me see if I can pull it up. Every restaurant right now. Roasted carrots, beet salad, crudo, tartare, cacio e pepe, many forms, fish, chicken, steak. I've been to every restaurant. Like I've Johnny Cash been everywhere around North America right now, including Mexico City. And it's very crazy how like the homogeneity of food. I understand why it's a two reason thing. It's like, first of all, it's comfort and nostalgia, which I think people are craving right now. And it's also food cost stuff and like beets are cheap. And it's also Instagram. So everybody can see each other all the time. And everybody's like all the, you know, bigger, more well-known chefs post their thing. And then it just like trickles down. And like that's that happened with pork belly in 2006, 2008, where like it was became a real thing. Fuku was like really pushing pork belly with their bows. And like before you knew it, like there's pork belly on the menu at Milestones. So like that's just how trends in restaurants work. So I think right now, like I, I did sort of think there was and I don't I still don't think it's not going to be a thing. Like, I, I mean, we're probably going to go into a recession, so it might be a little while. But I do think that the sort of splashy kind of like cokey 80s is going to happen. Wow. Cokey 80s. Well, I remember them. I remember the 80s. I think I say, I think when, when like when we eventually do get to a point where COVID is not entirely dominating every fucking conversation that you have with people in coffee shops or on the street or everywhere, your friends. When that does finally happen, which I do believe it will, like I'm not saying I think COVID's ever going to be totally gone, but I think that the way that we have to live through it will be different. And I think when that happens, even though it, it's sort of been not a bang, but a whimper as we kind of like whimper our way out of this and we're still dealing with all of the same stuff, I think there will be this kind of like decadent moment. 
Well, I can't wait. And Jen, we, I'm just realizing what time it is. We got a, we've been talking for a long time. It's been lovely, lovely to talk to you. I know. I know. It just flew. Thank you for taking the time. And I hope everything goes well with Roland. And I'm going to be patronizing all your restaurants as long as they're around. Great. Research, research, more research. Research. Absolutely. I could write it all off. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you. I found her really intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, but in a nice way. But I was like, she's very, she's very strong and very precise. And I felt that I had to be strong and precise in response. So you didn't like that little lecture about being precise with your language? <laughs> yeah, well, I know what she means. I know what she means. There's especially when you're talking about feelings, the right word makes all the difference. Well, and people are characterizing her. I think that's what she was going on and on about is that with reason is that people assume that she's this thing because she has opinions and people say she's a bitch, but actually it's way more complicated than that. And she's just a successful woman with opinions who's not afraid of showing them, which isn't intimidating. But, but why is it more intimidating from a woman? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if she were a man, but then I can't even imagine that, you know, I would still find him intimidating. I think it's just, and when I say that, I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like I'm told often that I intimidate people and I say, good. <laughs> That's the point. I'm glad you're intimidated. Now back off and agree with me. It's funny how everybody doesn't just agree like all, all the time. I hope the boob question didn't throw her. No, I'm glad you went there. You're braver than I am. I find my, like, cause we, we do, you know, in the, in the um, interest of telling you everything, Wendy and I do put together our questions ahead of time. And there it was in our notes, ask about the breast. And I'm like, Wendy, ask about the breast because I don't want to. <laughs> because I just didn't want to offend her. But then why would it be offensive? She wrote about it. Yeah. But I think it, what you were saying, I think it is harder. Well, I mean, cancer is not great. It actually kills people. But it's common. Yeah, we had surgeries and we survived, but being born with just one boob would be like, I can't imagine, like being a teenager is hard enough without having to go through, go through it with one boob. Yeah, exactly. But she was confident all through her childhood. She said she was a confident teenager, maybe because of that, maybe because you know you're dealing with this. So really, you're not going to sweat the small stuff. Yeah, well, and don't call me not a writer. She's a writer. She's got another book coming. I know, but you know what I meant, you know, like somebody who's that sole purpose. I think it's great that women want to be seen as, as a bunch of things. And uh, we just have to get our heads around that and, and around her too. Okay. Question for you. Do we leave the C word in or don't we? Well, my husband is from Ireland, Scotland, whatever. And they use it all the time. Yeah. And it's like normal. Like he, he thinks the word ass is bad, but uh, <laughs> if you could say dick, then why can't I say the C-U-N-T word? But to me, it's just like, no, you don't say that. And there are words that we're all uh, aware of, I hope, me included. I'm all right with bitch. I'm totally fine with bitch and dick and all those, but the C word still throws me. And if you didn't hear it in this interview, it's because we took it out. Now, you know. Gee, I wonder what the C word was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to see you. The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect. 
with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.